Hello and welcome to another episode of TOTS. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have Chris Wilson. He is a visual artist and social justice advocate. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was actually referred your story by a friend of mine, Ben Mayer, uh, who does a lot of things in the visual arts space. Uh, and he said, you have to check out this guy's story. So why don't we start off? Can you tell me what it is about you that's special and, and where did you begin? How does your story start? So <laughs> I, I, would, I would push back and say that I'm not special, maybe a little above average, but my, my story starts in Washington, D.C., uh, I guess in the 80s, 90s, when I was growing up as a teenager. And Washington, D.C. at the time was a very different city, experiencing a lot of gun violence, a lot of drugs. It was around the time before the, the war on drugs and, and all of that stuff started taking place. And so I lost a lot of friends. I lost family members to gun violence and drugs. And one day my family, well, my mom and I was attacked by a police officer and he sexually assaulted my mom and tried to kill my mom, but she survived and he lost his job, started stalking our family. And I started carrying a gun for protection around this time. My mom fell into a, dep a depression after the attack. And so she couldn't work and she got addicted to, to the pain pills uh, that she was prescribed from her injuries. And so my mom was spiraling downhill. And meanwhile, this police officer got out of prison and started stalking our family. And, you know, my, my brother was uh, gunned down and my cousin in front of the house. And my brother survived, but my cousin passed away. And then one night people came after me and I ended up taking a person's life. And I was, a, I was 17 years old and I was charged as an adult and I was sentenced to natural life in prison. And when my first year in prison, I just was in a, a deep depression. I was smoking weed and just, I couldn't believe my life was over. I was 118 pounds. I was a child. And I just kept thinking and having nightmares and dreams that I, you know, I kept saying to myself, I knew I was a good person and that I had a good heart and that I could turn my life around. And so it was around this time that I started thinking about how can I prove to myself and to the world that my life was redeemable. And I met someone in prison who was really book smart and eventually became my mentor. And so I just created this bucket list, but I call it a master plan. And it was how I was gonna turn my life around through education, through therapy. And then I was gonna get out of prison. And I was on, I didn't know what social entrepreneurship meant at the time, but I knew that I wanted to start businesses that help people, that improve the environment, that created job opportunities for people. And I wanted to buy my dream car and travel the world. And so I wrote all this stuff down on my master plan and I sent it to my judge. And I was around 19 years old at the time that I sent it to the judge. And so every day after that, I just studied with my, my mentor and my friends and went to school, went to college. I studied languages, took vocational shops and read hundreds and hundreds of books and became a mentor. And eventually, after 16 and a half years in prison, I was granted a second chance to live my life. But the judge told me that I can't get out and just be regular. I have to finish everything on the master plan. And so I've been home now from prison going on nine years. And I started several companies uh, here in Baltimore City. I've helped uh, just under 300 people get jobs in Baltimore City, mostly returning citizens or people who need help the most. Uh, won a bunch of awards, uh, including the presidential award from Obama and went to the White House several times. Uh, published my book uh, through Putnam, Penguin Random House, uh, Master Plan, which I'm, I'm really happy about. It's been published for two years now. And four years ago, I started, uh, you know, started painting. And I fell into art and it was mostly uh, therapeutic and cathartic for me. But I started traveling around the world. I visited 24 countries in the past three years and started painting in Paris and working in Italy and, and selling art over there in South America. And so now it's just my, my focus is more on the arts and supporting other social entrepreneurs and being an advocate for uh, criminal justice reform. So I'm happy to be here. So I know that was a lot, but in a gist, that's, that's my story. <laughs> No, I appreciate that. And I think, uh, too, after writing a book about 
your entire life and your story. This has to come. It it felt very very easy for you to talk about everything that's happened in your life. Yeah. Um, and wow, I, you know, I've read a little bit about you. Um, but I I kind of like to come into these interviews a little bit uh, underprepared so that I can be surprised and and wowed. And you have an incredible story. Um, and I don't want to focus on it too much, but it is where your story began. Right. Tell me about your your beginnings in terms of um the the person whose life you ended what was that situation you had people coming after you obviously dc uh it's still not a very safe place but it was right. a lot less safe at that time so what happened and what was going through your head when that went down so i actually i actually don't know why these people came after me i'm assuming these were people that were sent to threaten us or that was after my mom or my family but so i don't know who they were i just know that I was, I was afraid and I was trying, I had a gun on me. I was wrong for that. And I was trying to get away from them. I was at a gas station it was people around and I just was trying to get away and they just didn't care. And I panicked and I started shooting um, at one of them who tried to jump on me. And, you know, I regret that I took a person's life. And so I, I never, I never really understood why they came after me or what happened, but I did have a chance to, uh, talk to the victim's family uh, before publishing my book and just, you know, apologizing and also uh, giving them an opportunity to see how I turn my life around and how I'm paying it forward by helping other people. And so it was, it was humbling to get the blessing from the family to continue the work that I'm doing today. So. Wow. And so to me, it sounds like you were in a situation where you did not have many options and you know, to that to that extent, you did have a gun on you to defend yourself and you did defend yourself. Um, but something that I've learned from a lot of people uh, who've had to, unfortunately, take somebody's life because they were being attacked, even though technically you aren't necessarily completely in the wrong because you're not the one that's instigating it. You're not going out looking for trouble. You're defending yourself. It still feels awful. And so from my perspective, hearing you talk about this, this is clearly been a huge motivator in your life to try and um, exert some positive change after something super negative happened. Um, it it seems like it really drives you. Absolutely. And it's one of those things like I've, I've, I have to accept responsibility that I've done something that I can't fix. I took a person's life. And so my, my what I've pledged is I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to prevent other people, especially young people, from making a decision that I made. I shouldn't have had a gun on me. I shouldn't have been outside at 11.30 at night. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things, the regrets that I have, but I'll spend the rest of my life trying to prevent folks from doing it. And also people who come home from prison who were dealt a bad hand, just trying to give them the best advice uh, to help them better their lives and, and contribute to their community. So I've been spending the past nine years just working every day that I get out to bed to, uh, to, to do that. I love that. And, what was the conversation like with that family? Um, and, you know, how did you find them? What was that process like? It, it was tough. And I don't want to get into like super specifics, like sure. and stuff, but, you know, I had to have a court hearing in order to publish my book. And because there was something called the, the Son of Sam statute that says a person can't profit off a notary of a crime. However, my book isn't about my crime. I mentioned the crime, but my book is about. Uh, a young man who gets swept up in the criminal justice system and comes up with a plan to turn turn his life around. And so the book is about that, but I had to prove that in court. And so I, I came in contact and sat down with the family about that. And, you know, they didn't know I was home. They was upset, obviously, but they wasn't there. They didn't know what happened. I didn't want to get into the details of like that family member came after me and, you know, I was, right. I didn't go into that, but what I, so one of the things that I said to them was, because they said, so why do you feel like you need to tell your story? And I said, and coincidentally, the, uh, the family members were also community organizers and doing the, the same kind of work I was doing in Baltimore. They were doing this in D.C. Wow. And I said, when you cut the TV on every day and you see people that look like us that have been killed, killed by police or just like whatever aren't you tired of it? And they said, yeah. And I said, I'm tired of it too. And I said, I genuinely believe that my story and everything that I went through 
can reach people like that. These young people who make a decision of, you know, I got all this anger bottled up, bottled up inside of me and I express it in a certain way. We all know that hurt people hurt people. I feel like I can reach these people. And I just don't want to cut the TV on in the morning and see people who look like us continually uh, uh, being buried or being uh, incarcerated for decades. And so that was kind of, that was like a defining moment where they understood. And they said, you know, and I apologize for what I did. And we, we kind of came to an understanding. And, you know, I, I told them out of respect, I won't mention like their family member's uh, name, but it, it was also a bit of closure for me just to have an understanding uh, with the family. I didn't mean to do what I did. I was afraid. Um, and now I'm just trying to make, you know, something positive out of a horrible situation. And I'm just trying to save a bunch of other people and keep them from doing what I did. I think that is unbelievably powerful and, and notable to, to be in a situation where something happened and, and it was unbelievably negative and someone's life ended up getting lost and to turn it around and to say, this is not going to define me. What's going to define me is the good works that I do right. and the people that I save from the same situation. So I, I commend you for that. That's incredible. Um, and I think, too, this is something that obviously over the course of the past year has been a very hot topic. Uh, you know, we've had much discussion and, and there's been, you know, I think this year a lot of progress made um, in that conversation and just talking about, like, whether it's police brutality, whether it's racism. Uh, whether it's, you know, gang violence, things like that. I think that a lot more people are aware of things going on. And I don't think that you can start to solve any of these issues if you're not having those conversations. So I think, you know, in that sense, this has been an incredibly, um, you know, I, I think we've progressed a lot in terms of being able to have these conversations and to say like, hey, like this is a problem. We, we've got problems with gang violence. We have problems with police brutality. There's racism problems. And at the root of all of it, I think, you know, you mentioned one of them, but we have two really, really strong emotions and that's anger and fear. Yeah. And I think that when you go into these situations and you look at, okay, well, what was the problem? You've got somebody who was angry or somebody who was scared. And those emotions drive these actions, positive or negative, that create these situations that then we have to figure out. So I think figuring out a way to control these emotions or to have conversations with people and say like, look, I know you're upset and I know you think that you only have this or this option, but actually there's a couple other options that you can right. take. There's right. different things that you can do. That's incredibly important. Um, and I think your story is a prime example of you are going to be put in situations in your life that you have decisions to make and there might not necessarily be a right one, but it matters what you do after the fact, after you make that decision. Um, and it's also amazing that their family was also involved in community organizing and, and yeah. trying to change some of these conversations, um, because as we know, gang violence, especially in Baltimore and in D.C., are are really bad. I was born yeah. in Baltimore. I lived in D.C. for four years. Um, do you see some of those trends changing in these cities or, or what would it take to kind of change some of these things? I unfortunately don't see the trends uh, changing, at least not in a positive direction. And I think the maybe, you know, my opinion, the reason is, is you got to think about like the causes of, you know, poverty and crime. And so there, there's some systems in place and these are like the byproducts of something bigger that happens in communities. So I don't see, I'm an optimistic person though, in general, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen things getting better, at least not here in Baltimore. Right. And you've done a lot of work to try and inspire these trends. What victories, uh, I guess that's the best way I could put it, what victories have you had or what um, movements in the right direction have you had within your community? Well, a couple of things. So I, I mentioned helping, I think there's 200, about 280 people get jobs in Baltimore City and just based mostly through my relationships with uh, employers and vetting folks and, and helping folks uh, get resources that they need to get employed. So that would be one thing. I've worked for a few years alongside of some amazing uh, social justice advocates, and we've overturned uh, the governor uh, in 2016, and which allowed people who've been convicted of felonies uh, to vote. 
And so in 2016, I voted for the first time in my life. And I was, I was incredibly uh, proud to do that. Uh, other things is, you know, I, I started companies that have inspired people to start their own company, social, uh, uh, social enterprises and hiring people who need help the most and returning citizens. And I will also say, you know, just being able to publish my book and have that book circulate all around the world and get, you know, almost 100 letters every week from people around the world saying how my story inspired them and that they'll be the next Chris Wilson or they have their own master plan. And so that's been incredibly inspiring. That's awesome. And and I do want to touch on your book, too, because it tells your story um, and people can go pick that up. Where's the best place where people can get that? We should just get that out of the way so people can uh, go read that. <laughs> so my book, which is titled The Master Plan, is so everywhere books are so. But I highly recommend uh, people to find their local bookstore and buy it locally. Uh, Amazon has enough money, uh, even though I, <laughs> yeah, my book is sold on Amazon. But I would encourage folks to uh, buy it locally. I, I also did an audio book, which is in my voice. So you can download that through Audible uh, if you like. Uh, and yeah, I, I encourage people to check it out. That's awesome. And your book has been highly successful. Like you said, you get 100 letters a week. What is the best piece of advice that you think people pulled out of it or the best story that you've heard uh, from somebody who read your book? Ah, oh, that's an amazing uh, question. I would say the best piece of advice from the book is that we do, we all do not have to be defined by a single decision that we make in life. So I think that would be like the gist, if I can sum up the book. The, the best story I think would be, I, had a, I got a text message from a judge, a Baltimore City Circuit Court judge, who sentenced someone to prison for a very serious crime about five years before I got the text message. And when he sentenced that person, he gave them an article about me. And, and he told this individual that this person was sentenced to life and turned his life around. So here's an opportunity for you to do the same. And so five years later, this person was standing in the courtroom. This person had went to therapy, uh, went to college, did vocational shops, and stood there and said, five years ago, you told me about this guy, Chris Wilson, who I've never met. And he says, I'm the next Chris Wilson. I earned my college degree. And when I'm free, I'm going to do this. And here's my master plan. Broke it all down. And so the judge reduced this sentence. And so the judge in the text message says, I just want to commend you on turning your life around and continuing to inspire people that you've never met. And I, did, wow. you know, I remember like just reading this message and just, I just started crying. Just like I, I, was, so, I was so humbled and overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I mean, you put into practice what you believed was the right thing to do. And through that, and then writing your book and, and selling it literally everywhere, you have inspired people. But also, even if, let's say, you had no success from this book, like barely anybody bought it, at the very least, this person found it from an article from this judge and used it and got their sentence reduced, which I think even if that was the only thing to ever come out of it, which it's not, and it's, it's come out thousands fold, right. but that in and of itself is incredible. That is inspiring the, the change that you wanted to inspire in a very direct and, and very successful way. So that's incredible. Thank you. Yeah. And I can imagine being pretty moved by that. Um, and I want to talk about your master plan a little bit too. So I was reading that, um, it was your grandfather who began to inspire you to yeah. kind of change things around. Talk to me about him and, and what he said to you that really struck you. Yeah. So, so it's, it's crazy because my grandfather was like my dad growing up and he was, he was very stern and tough, super, super entrepreneurial. And he just, he saw, he saw potential in me even when I was young and he wanted great things. When my grandfather has like a crazy story, he grew up in the South and lost a bunch of family members and fought in the Korean war and came back and just, you know, turned his life around. And so he, he just, he had such high expectations for me. But at the time when he, you know, when he was, he was battling cancer uh, before I went to prison. And so he was getting ill and he just, he made me promise 
him that I would come up with some kind of plan. I had no idea how I would do it. But he says, you know, you always um, were so intelligent. You're a smart person. I want you to promise me that you'll figure out a way how to prove it to people because I see it. And I just didn't know what he was talking about at the time. And so I thought about those times when my grandfather passed away. He passed away my second year in prison. And so going forward, I just decided that I would honor my grandfather's name by just uh, just doing the work. And so when I'm out and uh, in the city or I'm in the classrooms, I'm always just hoping that my grandfather is just watching me like and saying that he's proud of me. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you you owe kind of your your spark to your grandfather kind of telling you to, like, get your act together. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate to that because I think everyone has this uh, force inside them and, and something that they can do. And, you know, if you're able to channel that, you can be the best that you can be in whatever that is that you happen to be good at. But I think that in some cases, like certainly mine and absolutely yours, you do need kind of a little kick in the pants to get on the right path. And once you get there, you know, things start opening up. And and I think it is, it's amazing what you're able to see and what you're able to do after that. Um, But I I just love the fact that, you know, your grandfather who's battling cancer, he's got all these other things to worry about. He's like, I need to go give Chris a kick in the pants because he he needs to figure his shit out a little bit. Yeah. I appreciate him for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So you, are an entrepreneur. We've talked about it a little bit, um, but we've had a couple different social entrepreneurs um, on the show before. And my favorite question to ask those people is, what is the most important thing that you've done or, or what has been the most successful and why did you decide to do that? Did you know it was going to work? Did you just have a feeling about it? So what was the most important thing that you started and why did you start it? That's a good question. That's a real deep, that's a, a real existential question. I We're getting a little deeper. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that it was deciding to tell my story. And what makes it important is because when I decided that I wanted to tell my story, I hadn't done anything positive in my life. And so at 19, I was in prison with a life sentence. And what I thought about was all the things that I've been through in the past, being kidnapped and burying my friends and watching my mom be attacked in front of me, this horrible stuff that I've been through. And so I started envisioning uh, uh, a, a different story of a person who'd been through all of that, but that had became successful, that could travel the world, and that could just do things that most people where I come from don't see it as being possible. And so I started thinking about that, envisioning it, and I wrote it down. And so many years, it took me a long, long time, but just to just to inspire people today and, and have proven that I was able to turn my life around and not just my life. Now I've helped hundreds of people do it. And now other people are inspired and they're doing it in their communities. And I think that would be like my most proudest uh, accomplishment. Yeah. And you talk too about um, prison reform, which I think, again, this is one of the topics in 2020 that right. we've, and, and certainly now into 2021 that we've been talking about regularly. Um, and that's super important. And I think it comes down to two major avenues. And, and I think depending on how people see these systems is, you know, what ends up happening. You have different people in power that believe different things. Yeah. So in my experience, someone commits a crime. And depending on that crime, there's a punishment that is supposed to fit that crime. And so... Right. That is that is the main section of how it works when you do something wrong and then it's corrected, right? But what we're learning is that the punishment, first of all, doesn't necessarily fit the crime. Uh, number two is that the punishment might be different depending on who you are. And there's all kinds of stats, you know, white people versus black people. You have females versus males. The, the statistics show that there's different trends in that. Um, and it favors people and, and it, you know, disfavors other people. And so that's our second issue. And then our third issue is that we're finding out that uh, not only does it not fit the crime, it might be too much or too little, but also it's not super effective. And, right. you know, you can you can relate this to parenting. You can relate it to anything that you want. But punishment is not always the best way to go through something. And although somebody has done something wrong and, yes, they do need to be punished for it. I still believe in that. We're finding that even though that can be useful in some ways, what is a lot more useful is teaching. 
So right. what was wrong about what you did? And and when you couple that with the punishment, and then also you add a little bit of reform in there, I think that's where we're seeing things progress and they get more positive. And I think, unfortunately, we do not have a prison system that's focused on reform. We do not have a prison system that's focused on what's going to happen to these people when they try and re-enter you know, normal life. And I think that causes a lot of issues. So right. your main issue here is that you're going to prison, you're punished, and then you get out. What the hell are you supposed to do? Right. You can't vote. Most people aren't going to hire you. A lot of people aren't going to trust you. And it, it doesn't matter what you did. If you are an ex-felon, you know, your life is a lot harder. So I think what you've done is talk a little bit about reform and sort of the social advocacy. So what else have you been doing around that? Are you petitioning anything to, to change in the prison system? What uh, is your main goal right now with how people are sentenced and what happens when they get out? Right. So I've been heavily invested in prison education and and advocating for reform, uh, for education opportunities behind the fence. We just we just heard that uh, the Pell Grants are, are being reinstated to allow uh, educational uh, programs uh, to be funded uh, behind the fence, which is incredibly important. And to dive a little bit into uh, the scenario uh that you that you uh, brought up about like just people, somebody commits a crime and they should be punished. And so just think like now I'm 42 years old. I live in a nice neighborhood. I'm a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen, right? So and this actually happened, right? So uh, a month ago, someone breaks into my car, right? I brought a new Porsche. Someone breaks into it, took some stuff out the Porsche. Now like just all, all, you know I'm upset, and a person commits a crime, they should be punished. But what I was thinking about also was like, well, I wonder why someone would break in the car and they took some stuff I can easily replace, replace it. I have insurance. But I started thinking about like, why is this person, they did it around like three or four o'clock at night. Like, what are they doing out this time of night, breaking in the cars? What, as a society, how have we may have failed this person like growing up, like in school or whatever? And so let's say this person gets caught and then they have to do six months in prison or, or a local jail, right? As a taxpaying citizen, like typically folks will say, all right, you got what you deserve. You broke in my car and now that's your punishment. But I've been thinking, well, you sending them to a place where, you know, we call it corrections that like whatever, like has this person out breaking in the cars, they're not going to get help for that. And what I would want, I'm, I'm paying, taxpayers are paying for that experience. But what they do is they, they, they uh, put this person in a, a space what about, you know, 50, 60 overcrowded space with people who maybe have, you know, committed murder and, and, and there's no educational opportunities for them. So this person is like, I'm breaking into cars, maybe because I have a drug habit or I can't get a job. So they should, whatever social deficiency, whatever they have, they should be working on those while they're in prison. There should be education. They should be going to school. You should be figuring it out. And so instead of the breaking into cars, maybe you figure out how you can fix cars and you can come home and you can be employed. But that's not how it works. Right. So you go in and you don't have these educational opportunities. You, you're around people all day. You're bored. You got nothing to do. You just talk about how to be a better criminal. And so when and this person will come home and they won't break into my car next time, they, they've learned some stuff. They're going to break into my house or maybe they're going to do something worse. And if we're paying for it already, I just think we get a better return on taxpayers' dollars if we invest in education. And so, that, and so I've been advocating for that. I've been working with folks on Congress. I've been writing and publishing articles and just champion the power of education. I, I earned a college degree when I was in prison. I learned several foreign languages, started studying. And then I would look back at my life as a child. I was like, I can't believe I was doing that stupid shit. Like now right. I can do this and I can go get a job and I can do all these things. And it's like, that's the power of education and so much science and data that backs this up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was a beautiful way to break it down too, because if you think about it, we are paying for people to be in prison. If you yeah. pay taxes, you are paying for people to be punished, yeah. which, again, you still need to have that. And, and the big thing for me that I think about when it comes to these situations is personal accountability. But then also, like you mentioned, like what failings have happened in that community, in that state, in that city, in, in this society that has put them in that position. And a lot of people would say, OK, well, it's one or the other. You right. can't say that it's society's fault and then also personal accountability because you just blamed it on society. And you can't say it's 100 percent their fault, like the people who would say 
they got what they deserved, and then also say, well, it's societal influences. I completely disagree. I think it's a mixture of both. And I think you can say both. You can say, okay, society. They grew up in a poor neighborhood. Uh, If we're talking about Baltimore City, we know that those schools do not get the funding that they need. We know that the literacy rates are abysmal in Baltimore City. Um, and they need more funding. We need better programs, and we just do not have it for one reason or another. So that's that's a society failing, right? Then you say, okay, well, this person maybe doesn't have access to uh, regular food or shelter or you know feeling safe. And if we're talking about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's yeah. very basic. To do anything else, you need that very basic stuff. And if they're not pre- being provided that, they have a couple directions they can go, and the one that's going to look the most beneficial is the negative one. Right. So everything leading to that scenario is society. Right. Making the choice to say, instead of trying to break out of this, which is very challenging, I'm going to go this way because it's going to be a little easier. I can break into you know six cars a night, yeah. sell whatever I get for that, and survive off of that. This is the easy route. It is their fault that they chose this way, so that's the personal accountability. But they were really set up to fail because if they can't read and write, how are they supposed to get an education? 100%. And so I think it's it's a combination of, of all of these things. But I think when you put somebody in a situation where you're saying, we're only going to talk about the personal accountability, which is important. But if you're not thinking about anything else in their situation, you've only got half the story. And then you're going to send them to a place, like you said, full of other people who chose the same thing and who didn't understand how to get out of that. Right. You're only going to set them up for more failure. Yeah, 100%. And and one other thing is the re-entry process, like the path to redemption. When I decided, I was 19, I said, I am going to, I'm no more breaking law. My mom used to tell me, if you're going to do something, at least be good at it. And so I, I had to look at myself and say, I've been breaking law, I've been doing stuff or whatever, because I felt like I had to, but I have to accept the fact that I'm not good at it. <laughs> look at me, <laughs> right? So, and so I decided to, to go down the, the straight path and, and there were so many obstacles. And, and that's the thing about American society, especially folks who come out from prison. They make it so difficult for you to get a job. You know, it, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. And so it's set up, the system's set up for you to go back to prison. And I've worked with so many young men and women who are like, I'm out here dealing drugs and I'm doing stuff. And I'm like, leave your gun at home and like, just take a, take a, um, take a break and come work with me for a couple of days and see if you like it. And it's just been so hard. Every, them getting stopped in the street and police taking the IDs or searching them or just, you know, not being able to get proper housing, all these things, having to check in with your, your probation officer twice a week. And it's like, I just hired you. You right. can't work twice a week and you have to pay for it, 40 bucks every visit. And they haven't Jeez. even been paid yet. And it's just all these things are set up. And if they don't do it, they go back to prison. It's so yeah, it's 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 an awful system. And I think, too, something that uh, I've seen over the course of, you know, the last, let's say, 15 months is this seems to be something that people are waking up to. Like I mentioned at the beginning, this is something that we're having the conversations and we're saying, like, hey, I had no idea that you go through this when you reenter society after being in prison because I've never been in prison and I don't know anybody who ever has. And it's understanding um, that the weakest part of our society is going to hold us back. If we consistently allow for people to be trampled down upon by some of these systems and, and you know, the prison system being the main example that I can think of, then we're never going to be able to progress to what we want to get to. Um, and I think another thing that we've touched on a little bit, you mentioned therapy, is the mental health crisis going on as well. And um, this is something that it's been super frustrating um, being passionate about because this should be the easiest bipartisan thing that we ever do. There's all of this political fighting, no matter where you are, no matter what the issue is. But everyone agrees that mental health is the cause of of all of these issues. We're talking about the prison system. We're talking about uh, homelessness, drug abuse. All of these things stem from especially, uh, you know, mental health and, and a lack of that. But nobody wants to touch it because it's not a hot button issue. So talk to me about how your mental health and going and seeking out therapy helped you to get to where you are today? So it's, it's been incredibly instrumental and in my transformation is embracing therapy. And I'll be straight up with you, it was very tough. My first couple of years, I wouldn't even talk in therapy. 
And I just felt like people wouldn't, I had so much anger and hurt bottled up inside of me. And I just felt like people wouldn't understand my plight and what I went through. And once I opened up in group therapy and in one-on-one sessions, I realized that all of my, my uh, colleagues had been through similar, uh, if not worse, uh, situations. And, right. you know, as I, as I went to college and continued to go to therapy, I realized that entire communities are, are suffering from generational trauma. And we, we talk about drug addiction. And a lot of times folks are just trying to numb that pain, that psychological pain, myself included. Like I used to be a self-cutter. And so I used to cut myself when I was young. And I spent time in solitary confinement. And people were like, why are you trying to kill yourself? And it wasn't that I was trying to kill myself. It was that psychological uh, trauma and pain that I was experiencing. And I was substituting it for physical, uh, for physical pain. And so right. that's something that we need to think about more often of how do we treat folks. And we all know, I said it earlier, that hurt people hurt people. You have people that become victims of crime and get abused. And at some point, they end up hurting people. And we have to be more preemptive, especially with mental health services. We need to have mental health uh, counselors in our schools. You know, someone gets killed, especially in Baltimore. Someone may get killed in front of the school. There's no counseling for young people who may have saw it or or maybe if if it was their friend. And so we got to be more preemptive and and proactive in helping folks with mental health services. I still go to therapy. I go to therapy, like I'll Zoom in every Wednesday. I go to therapy. It's important. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It means that, you know, you, um, you understand the importance of, of taking care of yourself and understanding yourself better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I go to therapy myself. I know a lot of different people that go to therapy. And the main thing that I am trying to help break the stigma of is that going to therapy means that you are somehow less mentally healthy when in fact, right. going and seeking out help for your mental health is super important. And right. it makes you a mentally healthier person. Because you're taking accountability and you're saying, I know I have this issue and I'm going to go seek help for it. So it's, it's super important. Yeah, I agree with you. So tell me, I'm super curious about what the attitude was towards you while you were in prison. So you were there for, for a long time and you decided at 19 after being in for two years that you wanted to turn things around and you and your roommate or your cellmate decided to, you know, start, start on this better path and start on this good trend. What was the attitude from the other people in prison towards you guys that were kind of like, you know, I, I, I want to fix things instead of going back into the same system. Yeah. yeah. They initially, they thought we were stone cold crazy because <laughs> we both had life sentences. And so people would say, you're not getting out. So why you, you know, my cell buddy studying computer programming. Why are you studying computer programming? I was studying foreign languages and going to college and people would say, well, why are you doing all this stuff? You're never going to go to Spain or Italy. So what, <laughs> what's the point? And, you know, I call it a positive delusion. We just deluded ourselves and believed that we would be free one day. And when that time came, that we wanted to be ready for it. Uh, but I will say also eventually, like when I got my high school diploma in about two or three months, People said, man, I've been in school for a year. How'd you get it in, in, in two or three months? And, and then, you know, we started tutoring people and showing people shortcuts. And some of these people were like tough gang leaders. And we would sit down with them and break down algebraic equations and writing essays. And then they would graduate high school. And so they started seeing the power of education. And so after a while, it was an army of us uh, just working. We started study groups. And as crazy as this may sound, the prison officials would just try to try to make it as difficult as possible for us to be successful. Uh, cut our school time, putting us in solitary confinement, any you know, canceling the college program at a certain point. Just anything they can do to make it so difficult. They turn it into a business where they just want to keep beds filled, and it's all about punishment. Yeah, I you know I wish that I hadn't, but I've heard of other prisons with with very similar things happening people are trying to educate themselves make sure that they're in there for the, as little time possible that they're going to be able to re-enter society but you know unfortunately we have a system that's set up where if a prison does not have beds filled it is not profitable and it costs a lot of money to run you know it's it's like a giant hospital with all the equipment and things like that not having enough patients 
And I think that one of the issues that we have with maybe certain hospitals and, and definitely certain prisons is that we are incentivizing people to be in there for as long as possible. But not only that, when you leave, we want you back because you, you're a bed that we're filling. We are getting taxpayer dollars for that. And obviously, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying. I don't think that all prisons are set up for people to fail. But I think certainly it's, you know, we talked about the, the, the fork in the road, right, when someone's had a bad situation. I think, unfortunately, all too often, it's very easy for a prison to say, of course, we're going to make it as challenging as possible to reenter, because if we don't, we have more beds to fill, and that's going to cause other stresses. So it's, it's definitely a messed up system. Um, I have a coworker who, uh, when we talk about investing in stocks, she will only invest in stocks that wouldn't profit or go up um, uh, due to like the suffering of other people. So right. it gets complicated when you talk about like vaccine companies and stuff yeah. like that. But, um, you know, I think that's certainly a good rule for what businesses and different things like that, that you are uh, patronizing. Like, yeah. you know, if they make money off of people's suffering, it's, it's probably a good idea to, uh, yeah. I think to about avoid. that. I think about that all the time. And as a social justice advocate too, I always find myself at this, at this, uh, pivotal question is how do I get people who have the power to do something about this problem to care more than they do now to do something about it right and I, I can't help but think about when I first got out of prison and I was in class and we were having a debate about you know issues of gun violence and and you know criminal justice reform in the classroom and so a woman behind me a student said, she turned around, she stood up and she says, well, she was a young white white girl, uh, about 23. And she says, well, you guys are getting locked up and you guys are dying in the community. I'm not, my people not dying, so why should I care? Police not stopping me, they stopping y'all. So so like, why should I care? And I was mad at first, but like, it, it, I, I never forgot that, that, uh, that statement because the, the stuff that we see on TV and the media and people, you know, being like killed and, and choked out po by police, it, it is a race thing. Like it doesn't, it doesn't happen as often with, with, let's say someone white. And so how do you get someone, like when I'm talking to legislators in the state of Maryland, it's all white people, mostly all white men. How do I get this white man to care about young black boys and girls being killed in the streets? How do I get them to care enough to do something about it? And that's like the question that I, I can't answer. Right. Yeah, I think you bring up an important point, too, um, just, you know, with that that woman is that it's I think we overcomplicate things sometimes. And, and certainly there are complex issues uh, involved. But I think, too, for me, it's it's the same thing. Like you're talking like, how do you get people to care? I personally believe this is this is just what I believe that people internally feel more comfortable and safer with people of their own race it does not make it right but i think it's it's an internal thing and i think it's like you know like the lizard brain thing where you're just like these people look like me i'm more comfortable with these people and i think it's an instinctual thing that you have to really break out of but it has to be a very conscious decision and so right. i think if you have never had that internal conversation of like why do i feel differently about people who are different races things can be way too simple for you. And you can say like, okay, I'm white. The people getting hurt are black. Why should I care? And you need to have that inner conversation that says, listen, all races of people have different major issues going on. And if I'm not that race, it's really hard to get somebody like that to care. And so to have those conversations with those people to try and spur on those inner conversations to say like, okay, well, maybe I'm African-American and I don't really understand um, let's say the plight of Asian students trying to get into schools like Harvard, like putting yourself in that position and saying, although these people don't look like me, they don't sound like me. Uh, they don't maybe like the same things that I do. I need to care because especially in the United States, because they're American, but around the world, because they're human, we're all humans. It, it really does not matter what your skin looks like, uh, who you decide to worship or not worship. None of those things really matter. What really matters is that we're all humans and we all have issues. Yeah. And it's not it's it's super selfish to say like, OK, well, I'm this. And so I'm only going to care about the issues of right. this kind of person. 
we're right. all people, right? So and we all want it's, the same stuff. We want good food, exactly. Schools and you know, have a have a home, a roof over our head. We all want the same stuff. And so I, exactly, I, I don't understand it at all. Yeah, and and again, it's you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that they need to have that internal conversation. In that, you know, you have to be so specific. You have to say, you know. I'm Asian and I don't understand the black experience. I'm white. I don't understand the Asian experience. I'm black. I don't understand the white experience. Like understanding that because you're coming from a different position, things can look certain ways, but they might not be that way. You have to have conversations with as many people as possible. That's one of the reasons that I have this show is literally because I, I'm, you know, just some white kid that just graduated college. And so I want to talk to as many different people as I can from as many backgrounds, races, everything that I can, because I don't think that you can be truly and fully human and caring and empathetic with other people unless you do have those conversations. And the only way to spur on the internal conversation is to have conversations with different kinds of people. So it's uh, it's definitely something I've I've tried to push for. It's It's really important. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So, Chris, I have really enjoyed having you on uh we've been talking for a little while now i have three questions for you uh that we try and ask most of our guests um just answer them to the best of your ability uh but again it's it's been fantastic talking to you i would not be super surprised if you receive some emails from me in the future asking uh or begging you to come back on the show uh in a couple seasons down the line um so my final three questions for you if you were a cocktail or a beverage doesn't have to be alcoholic. What would you be and why? I would probably be a Long Island iced tea because okay. uh, a mixture of a lot of things. I mean, they put almost everything in Long Island iced tea. And I consider <laughs> myself a, a person of, of many talents and I'm strong and I, you know, a Long Island, you'll have a good time. <laughs> I, I would, I would go with that. Long Island iced tea, uh, just a, a mixture of stuff. I'm, I'm very multifaceted person, interested in a lot of stuff, genuinely curious about everything, and so it's a lot of stuff in that drink. And so uh, that's what I would have to go with. I like that. That's a very good answer. Uh, you have lived a very interesting life. You've had a very rough start. Um, you know, up until you were 17 years old and you've seen a lot of awful things and had a lot of awful things happen to you. Do you have any regrets in your life or anything that you think that you would change to put you in a different position than you are in now? Absolutely. I, I regret I regret not reaching out for help when I was young. I remember losing five of my friends before the age of 17 and just being angry. And I remember sometimes, like my mom and other folks would say, well, what's wrong? Do you want to talk about it? And I didn't feel like I could talk about it. I wish I would have done that and open up. And I think I probably would have got the help that I needed. And I probably wouldn't have had a gun on me that night. I wouldn't felt that I needed it. And I wouldn't have committed the crime um, that I committed. And so I just wish I would have opened up and got the help that I needed. So that would be one of my biggest regrets. Sure. And, and just to kind of build off of that, if you at home are struggling with any mental health issues, uh, I absolutely suggest that you seek out help, even if it's just your friends, your family. Um, but then please don't rule out professional help. I know a lot of us have had good and bad experiences with therapy, um, but it really is there for a reason. Um, so please, you know, you can even reach out to the show and we will help connect you with somebody that can help you a little more. And so, Chris, my my final question for you this is a very important question, and I've gotten a lot of different answers. Um, my final question for you is, do you think that you are a good person and why? I definitely think I'm a good person. I've always felt like I was a good person, and I believe that my actions demonstrate that I'm a good person, how I spend my time. I raise money, uh, I tutor, I mentor. I do maybe 85% of the work that I do for the betterment, the good of others in my community. And I think that, I think it makes me good. And I always think about setting positive examples for people. And I say all of this, uh, it, um, 
despite having a very uh, rocky upbringing, committing a terrible crime, but I've spent the last 20 something years uh, proving that I'm a good person and showing other people that they can be good people as well. So I definitely would say that I'm a good person. Awesome. That's a, that's a great answer. All right, everybody. This has been Chris Wilson. He's a visual artist and a social justice advocate. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of them, you can go to our brand new website, www.totspodcast.com. I've gotten very good at saying that very quickly. Uh, If you want to check out some of our other episodes, you can go to our website or you can go to pretty much anywhere where you can listen to music or podcasts. I suggest Spotify, Apple, or Google. Those are our three top. That's where people love to listen to us. But again, website's brand new, has all of our episodes there, catalog, so it's really easy to go through. Highly suggest that. A lot of our episodes are now being filmed, so please go check out our YouTube. You can find us. Just search Tots Podcast. We will pop right up. We have some incredible interviews that we have filmed, uh, including likely this one, as long as we don't have any technical difficulties. Uh, so please check that out as well. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so at TotsCast. We have LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, pretty much anything you can think of. And our brand new TikTok. Please check us out on TikTok. We will post basically highlights of all of the episodes there. If you would like to read Chris Wilson's book, please check it out from any local bookseller. You can also look it up online and then you can figure out where to find it. If you want to follow Chris on social media, Chris, where can they find you? You can find me at uh, Chris Wilson Baltimore on Instagram. And my website is chriswilson.biz.biz. Perfect. Thank you, Chris. All right. This has been Tots Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Ben Gardner. I will see you next week. We post every single Friday at 6 p.m. I hope you have a fantastic week and I love you. See you next time.